you know, sometimes it, it, it doesn't take much to just sit back and listen to the words of a good song. Uh, I, I, could sing, I could sing, the first time I heard that, that song was about a couple of years ago, honestly. Um, but that, that, that chorus, I could sing that chorus just over and over and over and over. Your, he's a good, good father. It's, it's, it's just who he is. It's, it's, it's just who he is. He's, he's a good, good father. And I'm so thankful this morning that we, we get to be here uh, uh, in the midst and uh, in spite of all the challenges that we face, we get to be here to just express our gratitude and our thanksgiving to a good and a great God that we ultimately serve. If you are here this morning and you are a visitor here with us, I just want to say welcome. Uh, and I just want to make this disclaimer. Uh, if, if anybody here has treated you with unkindness, uh, please conclude that they are not a member of the Antioch Church of Christ. All right, so, so they just conclude they are a visitor as well. Uh, but I'm, I'm so glad we're here on this morning. Uh, I want to get into Jonah chapter number three. Uh, I've been preaching through the book of Jonah, if you guys didn't know now, for the past few weeks. We've, we've spent some time looking at chapter number one, looking at the, the reality and the lessons that we learn in a storm uh, we went on to chapter number two, even though we really didn't spend much time there on last week to look at uh, some, key, some key points concerning the prodigal's prayer. And this morning, I want to spend just a, a brief moment of your time just talking a little bit about chapter three as we think about this theme that Jonah, or the, at least the writer of Jonah, uh, is establishing concerning the God of heaven. So in our text today, we are geared to getting a clearer glimpse into this theme and message that God is presenting and developing before his Jewish audience. The message, among others, that you might find, uh, probably the main message in this text is this, that God is the sovereign God of all. This sovereignty not only sees him, God, as Lord and Savior of the Jews, but rather he is Savior of all mankind. He's not God of some, but he is God, in fact, of everyone. His love, his mercy, his grace, his protection, his provision, his blessings, and his promises are for all, for whosoever will may come and have a connection and a relationship with Almighty God. But in as much as I say that there must be placed a disclaimer because in as much as God opens his arms to a loving embrace to everyone, in as much as, as God is the God of everyone, we are the ones that ultimately have to choose him. The psalmist would conclude, he prepares a table before me in the presence of mine enemies, I would use that line to put it this way, that, that in as much as God has prepared and in as much as he prepares a table for us in, in the presence of our enemies, we have to sit and we have to eat. 
So in other words, God presents himself as the God of all. He is Lord and he is Savior of everyone, but everyone has to choose God. Jesus would declare, Who, whosoever re- doesn't receive me and rejects my word has one that judges him. The same words that I have spoken, the same is what shall judge him or her in the last days. That's found in John chapter 12 and verse number 48. So God extends his hand of mercy. God reaches out his hand of love. He, his arms are open in compassion, but, but people, his subjects, his creation has to choose him. Aren't you glad this morning that we don't have a monopoly on God? Aren't you glad this morning that he is, is, is God of black people and, and white people? Aren't you glad this morning that he is the God of Hispanics and, and Asians? Aren't you glad this morning that he is the God of Republicans and, and Democrats? Aren't you glad this morning that he is the God of the rich and the poor? So here it is, we find ourselves in a situation where where the writer of this account of the book of Jonah, he is pulling on a theme that we find from the very creation of man that says we serve a God of a second chance. We serve a God of a second chance. If you don't mind, just just look to your neighbor and declare to your neighbor this. Say, say, I'm glad. No, no, no. Say, Say it with some feeling. Say, I'm glad. He is my God. No, 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 you have to repeat. No, 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 say it this way, say it this way as well. I'm glad he's your God too. God is the God of everyone. And I'm glad, I'm glad as you think about the theme of of the book of Jonah, God is trying to teach his people that I am not just God of the Jews. I I love the fact that that I have a relationship with this group and I love the fact that this group of individuals have given themselves in, in willingness to be subjected to my laws and subjected to my will and subjected to my way. But but make no mistake about it, being a Jew didn't mean that you had a monopoly on God. The same way church make make no mistake about it. God is the God of everyone, especially to those who call on his name. So that is to say uh, the church needs to be really careful. Christians need to be really careful in thinking that we have a monopoly on God. Surely we have a special connection. Surely he is a good God to us, but the same way he's a God to saints is the same way he's a God to sinners as well. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to jump a little bit. I won't do it, but it makes me want to jump a little bit because before I became a saint, I was deemed a sinner. And I'm glad still because even though I am a saint, there are times when I do sin and there are times when I do stumble. I'm glad I don't just serve a God who is a God of saints. I serve a God who understands that his people, his creation do fall and they falter from time to time. And so his love isn't just there when we're walking right. His love is there as well when we sin and we falter. And so we we don't have a a monopoly on, on God. God is there to be shared with all 
a verse and Jonah, at least the writer of Jonah, pulls on this theme that is, is generated and declared from the very first book in scripture that was written. We find a theme, whereas every single time man would stumble and man would fall, here comes a good, omnipotent, powerful God, an all-knowing God, and he reaches down time and time and time and time and time and time again to lift his people up. So even though I, I have here the God of second chances, I, I want us to see that the idea of a second chance is not, well, you, did it, you didn't get it right the first time, he gives, you, he gives you one more chance. No, 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 he's a God that gives you chance after chance after chance after chance after chance. It becomes the second chance every single time because he wipes the slate clean every single time. So here it is, we, we find this theme that God is a God in fact of second chances and God is using the life of Jonah hopefully to, to teach the Israelites this very valuable lesson that, that in as much as I have extended grace towards you, you must in turn be willing to extend grace to others. I've found it, I've found it true that sometimes as, as the people of God we could become close-handed with the blessings of God. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Sometimes we find ourselves in a position where we are so appreciative of the grace and mercy that God has placed on our lives and, and we love it when God extends grace and mercy toward us. But then there comes a time where we have to extend said grace, said mercy, said love, check this, said forgiveness to others who would wrong, do wrong against us and it becomes hard. But if we are honest with ourselves, we love it when God forgives us for the same thing that we pray for, for four, five, six years, time and time again, and he forgives us time and time again. But here it is, we find it hard sometimes to dispense some forgiveness when people do us wrong. If, if, if you could count just for a little bit, if you could just shout a number, I'm not saying for you to shout your number, but if you could put a number to the amount of times you sin on a daily basis, or if you could equate and put a number on the, on the amount of times you have sinned in your life, what would that number be? And I need for us to see this, that for, for whatever that number is, and that's going to be a high number, by the way, Thomas. That's not in the hundreds. Well, I'm a, I'm a hundred-year sinner. Uh, that's not just in the thousands. I'm a thousand-year sinner. No, 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 no. That's, it's not even in the millions or, or the trillions. There, there is not a number that we could put to the amount of times that, that we have sinned in the sight of God and even in the sight of man. There, there is no number. You pull all the money in the world, and for every dollar there is there, there is more sin compounded upon all the money that we have present in the world today. So we're talking about an insurmountable mountain of sin and iniquity that God had just leveled, he removed, and he dumped into the sea of forgetfulness because of the blood of his son Jesus Christ. And yet still, we find ourselves so quick not to dispense just a little bit of forgiveness, uh, a little bit of grace, uh, uh, just a little smidget of, of mercy or compassion to those who are like us, to those who are fellow 
human beings like you and me. Here's, here's a little news flash. I'm going to get straight into my message. Here's a little news flash. The same love and mercy that we need is the same love and mercy that others need. The same way that we sin and we are in need of forgiveness is the same way that others sin and they are in need of forgiveness as well. But let me go one step further. The same way that we need some compassion from others. The same way that we need people to just give us a little bit of understanding. Give me a little bit of latitude. I make mistakes sometimes. and I, I, I need you to have a little patience with me. The, the same way that we need to have people show us patience is the same way that we need to show patience to others. The same way that we don't always get it right is the same way that others don't get it right as well. So we, we need to recognize that we serve a God who is sovereign God of all. And in as much as he becomes our God, he's the God of everyone. And he is a God of second chances. That should give you hope because it gives me hope because it tells me as much as I mess up, God's power and strength is there. That should give you and me hope because in as much as I know that hell is real, I'm not so much pointed on hell in as much as my focus is on heaven. I, I, I don't know if that makes sense to you. I know hell is there, but my focus is not on hell. My focus is on heaven. Hell is a real reality, but my focus is so much on heaven that hell is to my back and heaven is to my forefront. And so when we think about this God that we serve, I just want to highlight some things really quickly from this text. And uh, hopefully the message will be yours and we'll be out of here, but certainly not out of God's presence. Uh, I want to I share this really quickly. In the book of Jonah, chapter number one, we identify and we find that the writer there is highlighting Jonah's rebellion. And yet still, as we find Jonah's rebellion, we make our way into chapter two, which is really a transitional point not just in the book, but also in the life of Jonah. So, so we find in chapter 1 the rebellion of Jonah, but in chapter number 2 we find God's retrieval of Jonah. Don't miss this. Last week, when I, when, I, when I made the comparison between what we find in the book of Jonah and, uh, and the, the New Testament account of Luke chapter number 15, the, the parable commonly referred to as the prodigal son, I alluded to the fact that the reality of that, that third parable was the fact that, that the second son, the, the elder son, the son that didn't leave his father and mother's house, that, that the, the, the message behind all of this was pointed at the second son, which was representative of the people of God, the scribes, the Pharisees, and those individuals who deemed themselves perfect. And here's the comparison that I didn't share last week, but I, I think I have enough time to share it now. When you think about what the younger son did, I want to I wanna put up, I want to juxtapose, I want to line up in parallel form what the young son did and what we find in the person of the, the elder son. Now remember, in Jonah chapter number one, that's all about the rebellion, but in chapter number two, we find this idea of God's retrieval. In, 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 in Luke chapter number 15, according to what we read in scripture, the, the younger son, number one, he disrespected his father. 
So when he comes to his dad and he asks his dad for his inheritance, that was a, a huge disrespect. And I know, I know, those individuals who are studies, uh, you know, academics of the word, I know there was uh, some clauses in the law and, and otherwise that could have allowed an individual who was alive, a, a young son who was alive, to have maybe asked his parents for his inheritance, you know, while the father, the, the, the parent was alive. Uh, you know, that was, you know, that was some special cases. If in fact the father was, was wasteful, the, the, the child could have in wisdom gone and asked to get his inheritance while the father was alive because the chances were if the father was wasteful, then by the time the father passes away, there would be nothing for him. So I, I understand all of that, but, but generally speaking, it was deemed a disrespect. It is a disrespect. I don't, I don't know how you feel about that, but for those of you who have kids, if your little uh, 15 or 16-year-old comes to you and they tell you, listen, mommy, daddy, I need for you to give me my inheritance now. It's almost as if to say they, they are saying, I just wish you were dead. Because an inheritance, by very mere simple definition of the term, the, an inheritance only kicks into effect after the person who offers it is dead. So I need for us to appreciate that the younger son, number one, this isn't, this isn't the ground to my message, but, but stick with me. The, the younger son was disrespectful to his father in that he demanded his inheritance. But number two, notice this. These are some of the, the, the straying points of the, this young man's heart. It says he moved and he isolated himself. Notice the text would say he went to a far country. He, want nothing, he wanted nothing to do with his dad. Right. But number three, not only did he disrespect his father, not only did he move and isolate himself, but also we see in the text that he wasted his resources, his money, and his substance was not put to good use. Enter the elder brother. He as well disrespected his father. He thought he was better off than the younger brother because the younger brother left home and because he didn't go anywhere, he was much better than the younger brother. Little did he recognize or little did he see that he was lost while there in the house. And I spent some time on this last week, so I don't want to belabor the point, but, but notice that the elder brother, even though he stayed, he, he lost sight of the fact that he too was disre disrespectful in refusing to go in to the party that the father had established for the younger son. Number two, not only was he disrespectful to his father, but he also moved, even though he didn't leave home, so to speak, he also moved and isolated himself from his dad. Notice in the text you would read, he didn't go in to the father, the father had to go up. So the young son disrespected, the young son moved, but guess what the elder son did as well? He disrespected God. Guess what the elder son did as well? He moved and he, I, you could isolate yourself in church while being present in church. All right. oh. All right. But also, but also, not only did he disrespect his father, not only did he move and isolate himself, but he, he too wasted his resources. 
What do you mean? I, I, I thought he said in, in his dialogue with his father that, that I didn't go about wasting my substance. He did. But, but I need for us to understand that the resources in mind here and the resources that is ahead of us, the resources I'm, I'm talking about is not the materialistic stuff. He wasted the ability to extend some mercy. He wasted the ability to extend some grace. He wasted the ability to extend some compassion. He wasted the opportunity to extend some love. You could waste the substance that God gives to you. It's not always about how you manage money. It's how you might be managing your mercy. It's not always about how you're managing your, your, your substance physically, but how you're managing those spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And God tells us he has given us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So we have it all here in abundance, and sometimes we refuse to give it out. And when you refuse to give it out, you are wasting this substance. So God says, I give mercy, I give grace, I give love, I give compassion in spades. And here you are being stingy. Stingy with it. So we find a situation in our text where God is showing that, that sometimes we go through a rebellion phase. But I have to come and retrieve you because the reason why I want to retrieve you and I have to retrieve you to begin with is because I want to restore you. God will pursue you like a tax collector around tax time. He will pursue you like some telecommunications representative the minute you walk into Sam's Club. You know what I'm talking about, right? You walk into Sam's and they, they already make eye contact with you and you're trying to look down at the floor. <laughs> he will pursue you with a love and a passion, the likes of which you have never be seen before because he wants a relationship with you. He wants to restore you. But every now and then we rebel and he has to retrieve because he wants to restore could I leave you with this really quickly? I just have two main points, and if, if, you, if you just get these two main points from my text, you get my entire message. When God restores you and I, be sure to remember and do these two things. I'm just going to say this, and I'm going to sit down. When God restores you and I, number one, remember to go all in. If you read the text, it starts off in verse one of chapter three by reiterating the exact same thing that God said to Jonah in chapter one. So when God restores you, he restores you to the same status that you had when you left. I'm not going to get into the intricacies of that. When you left, you were a son. When you left, you were a daughter of the king. In your rebellion and in, 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 in your worldly living, you strayed. And so that didn't reflect good on the God that you and I serve. 
and he had to come and retrieve you and I. And when he retrieves you and I, what happens is because of the sins and the lifestyle that we live, we feel as if we are unworthy. We don't necessarily want to be called sons and daughters anymore. Like the prodigal son, we would rather simply be a street sweep in heaven. Let me be the one to clean the toilets. Let me be the one to do all the grunt work. I don't necessarily have to have the title of son. Make me as one of your hired servants is what the young son would conclude. But when God the Father restores that relationship, he isn't thinking about making you a servant. He's trying to reestablish the connection of sonship. In other words, you and I become so guilty in, in, in our sin that we fail to see that when God says, listen, I have forgiven you, then that's simply what it is. I have forgiven you. People will remind you, James, of what you did 15 years ago. When you were a young boy, you didn't know any better. People will remind you of stuff you did when you were a child. People will remind you of things when you were one year in to your marriage or 50 years removed now in marriage. People will remind you of things things. But when God forgives you, he doesn't remember what you did, even though he, he, when I say remember, he doesn't hold on to what you did 15 years ago. What you're doing right now is enough to condemn you. Don't miss that. God doesn't pull up, that's a human trait, God doesn't pull up a, a file of what you did and, and, and how many times you sinned the same sin in coming to him for forgiveness. God doesn't pull up a, 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 a file to say, well listen, you've been praying for this, I just forgave you for this yesterday and for this, these past 10 years now I've been forgiving you, no more, no more. God doesn't do that, he forgives you yesterday and if you come back today, the same, the same sin that you commit today is what we're going to deal with. And we need to learn that sometimes. We, we need to understand that sometimes. Yes, I know sometimes people have patterns and uh, you don't want to encourage people in sinful, sinful traits and sinful deeds and sinful living, but sufficient for today is the evil, the scripture says, thereof. Deal with the sin in the present. Stop trying to bring up stuff from the past. This becomes a, a huge st a st sticking point for Jonah because here it is, Jonah is given a commission after being restored. Jonah is given his commission once again. And instead of going all in, instead of being fully committed to the mission, Jonah is, is, is just doing the bare necessity. The scripture, you would find some definitions, I don't have time to do this, but you will find some definitions of Nineveh as being a great city of three days journey. That language is ambiguous because on one hand, is he saying that it, take, it would have taken three days for Jonah to get from where he was to where Nineveh is? Or is it more a, a, a description of how great the city was in terms of it being a three day journey from one gate on one side to a gate, Nineveh had 15 gates, by the way, to, to a gate on the opposing end. I want to suggest to you, that might be one way of looking at it, but I want to suggest to you from a, a deeper theological standpoint, when he describes Nineveh as being a great city of three days journey, he is describing more so their close nature to destruction as he, in, in as much as he's not really describing how big and elaborate the city was. 
So in other words, it's a great city in number. It's a great city in people. It's a great city in size. That's true. But it's also so close to destruction because of how great the wickedness really is. Jonah is told, go and preach to Nineveh. I want to run through this really quick. Jonah is told, go and run to Nineveh. Get ready. Get ready, Thomas. Jonah is told, go and preach to Nineveh. If you understand the culture of the day and time, whenever you will a herald, a typical herald will start heralding the moment that herald steps into or through the city gate. That was one way of heralding. An emissary of a king, if you were trying to get a, a, a nation to follow some type of command, the emissary would walk through the gate, walk through the streets, get to the palace, make his way in, 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 into the courtyard and, and allow himself to take an audience with the king and he would share the information there so the information would disseminate from the head all the way down to the rest of the people. Jonah gets this command and he still hasn't forgotten Nineveh's past. So he is basking in the forgiveness that God has extended to him, but he is wasting the substance of forgiveness and still choosing to remember the history of Nineveh and the Assyrians of which makes up this city. So he decides, I'm only going, going to go so far, and it says he makes his way about one day's journey in again. That might be figurative uh, language to begin with. He makes his way one day's journey in, and he stops right there, and he declares, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. If you continue reading the text, you would realize that no sooner did they hear that, did the people that heard that they began to go down in sackcloth and ashes, and they began to repent, and all that kind of stuff. And then eventually the king, whom he should have gone to first, the king gets wind of what's taking place. And the king now declares a nationwide fast. Because we have received the word of the Lord. Again, God is teaching through the person of Jonah here and through this situation that, listen, even if you don't take me and you don't go all in with me, it's not really about you, it's about my word. Even when you are only doing the bare minimum and you're, you're not willing to go fully in, in accepting and embracing the message, I just need you to preach truth. And truth is going to be enough to turn people's heart around. Remember that because I'm going to make a, a, a next declarative statement here in just a little bit. So number one, and I, I need to be done. Number one, when God restores you and I, number one, be sure to go all in. God's message is powerful and demands our commitment. But number two, and I'll be done. Not only do we need to go all in, when God restores us, but we need to go beyond the surface. Go beyond the surface. It's one thing to give yourself in commitment to the mission. It's the next thing to give yourself in commitment to the message. There's a difference. Sometimes, and in our fellowship, if I have to be honest and sincere, in our fellowship, we have spent a lot of time putting our effort and energy into the mission. We have become, we, we, we've been very missional-minded, but we've missed the heart of the message. 
going all in and going beyond the surface calls us to, to, to be fully committed to the mission as well as give commitment to the message. The mission is about sharing God's gospel to save souls. The message is a message of grace. Repeat that one more time. The mission is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. What is the message? The message, therefore, is a message of hope. Let me say this one more time so it could sink in. And if it sinks in, just let me know. The, 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 the mission is to, to go from house to house and to go from place to place, to, to go from people to people and to share this saving word of grace and truth. The message, however, is a message of love, compassion, mercy, and forgiveness. So let me say this to you and we'll be done. Uh, truth, church, without grace is pharisaical legalism. You, you, you'll get that on the repeat when you listen to the, to the sermon one more time. Truth without grace is pharisaical legalism. Grace now, without truth, because I feel